Here's my conversation with Cole Turner. Cole is a senior software engineer at Netflix, focusing on user interfaces and experimentation. Cole and I talk about a range of topics, including tips for technical interviews, teaching yourself how to code, and how to keep growing in your career as a developer. This episode was recorded live on Clubhouse. Hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks for joining me. I'm super excited to talk to you. Likewise. I'm happy to be here. I want to start off by asking more about your coding journey. You're a self-taught engineer. That's really cool. And I want to ask, how did you first start getting into coding? Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, it, it, is it cool? I don't know. Because like, I feel like <laughs> a lot of people have these really exciting, like, I learned, like, some people are like, I learned coding by going to a hackathon and I fell in love with coding. And for me, it was more kind of, I, I stumbled upon it very, like, clumsily, where I, you know, I was escaping from puberty in high school by getting into video games. And I was so addicted to video games that I also happened to be kind of bad at them. So I got into a cheating community where I learned how to write bots for games. And uh, my first program was a, a Java bot for RuneScape. And then from there, that led into web development. Very cool. And so this was at a pretty young age then, is that right? How old were you? Oh gosh, um, it was like seventh grade. So I must've been like 13 years old. But I wasn't really like, I don't know, it, it depends on what you define as software engineering. Like I was just kind of hacking around the code for a year or two and then I took it more seriously when I was about 15. Awesome, so what happened from there? Can you talk more about you know, that story? How did you go from having this hobby to working professionally? Oh, that's a great question. I, you know, cause some people, they look at software engineering and they're like, you know, I want to be a computer scientist. And for me, I didn't realize that was a thing. Um, I did programming for about like seven, eight years before I even realized uh, you could make money off of it. It was just kind of this thing that I, you know, I'd, I'd come home from school and I'd, you know, write a program here or there and it was fun. And, you know, it, it, it's kind of like that hacker man vibe where it's like, oh, I created something and it's in front of me, it's alive. But, um, I, I started taking it more seriously about, you know, five to six years in when I was doing web development and I realized people were actually paying for what I was doing. And while a lot of my early work was for free and volunteer and open source, I started to, you know, look to marketplaces and do freelance work. And then that led into startups and startups turned into big tech. Very cool. So you had your own startup. Yeah, I I co-founded my first startup at um, 19 called Tiny Chat. Can you talk a little bit more about that? What did it do exactly? Yeah, uh, so Tiny Chat was a, hmm, it, it's like at the time Skype was really popular and it was really hard to get on Skype. You would, you know, have to install this program, give it admin privileges, let it run amok on your computer. And then you'd have to find people. But Tiny Chat was just this link that you could send to people and text chat. And at the time, it wasn't totally revolutionary. Like at the time, there was these things called shout boxes, which would run on forums. And so you could communicate that way. But we took that and we basically created like instant chat rooms that you could just send a link to your friend and uh, you would type something and it would be there instantly. 
And it all ran over PHP and MySQL for a little while until it kind of blew up. That's awesome. That sounds pretty fun to build. Very cool. <laughs> yeah, it was. Like I did I had no idea that it would even go anywhere. I was like, this is, you know, I'm just creating this thing and like it's fun, but uh, you know, there's that saying if, if you build something, the users will come. And that was kind of the first aha moment where I saw that like users were and you know, it developed from there. It, it turned from a text chat into a video service. But it's always so weird when I encounter somebody in, in tech or even in my personal life where I'm like, yeah, you know, I built this thing called Tiny Chat. And they're like, you did Tiny Chat? No way. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> you know what that is? <laughs> that is so cool. So, um, okay, this is kind of a big question, but I think there are a lot of people who are currently learning how to code, especially with all this time at home during the pandemic. And I'd love for you to talk more on, you know, what's your advice for people who are trying to teach themselves how to code? Oh, that's a great question, Madison. I think I'm going to first describe what I did and I'll tell you why I don't recommend this is I learned <laughs> through trial and error and it was painstaking. Um, so... <laughs> If anybody here has had experience with gaming communities, you know that it's pretty hostile and toxic. And so when I would try and ask for help, like, why is it my program running? They'd be like, hey, get out of here. Shut up. What are you doing? What you don't you should you don't belong programming. And you know, for some reason that didn't stop me. I I kept trying and trying. What I would do is I would Google errors and make, you know, one change to the code, compile the program, run it again. I did this for about a year and I didn't know there was resources. I did at the time there was no GitHub, there was no Stack Overflow. There was just people helping people and I guess books and but I didn't really know about that. Um but I will say one thing I did that really helped me was I found somebody who like a mentor who I could go to with any questions. I would bring him PHP errors and he'd say, "Uh well you made this syntax error, you know, your program's wrong." here's how you fix it. And it was kind of like that, you know, teach, if, if you want to feed somebody, don't just give them a fish, teach them how to kind of moment. That really helped me. If I had to give advice about, you know, people who are learning how to code today, there are a lot of great resources out there. I still recommend you get a mentor, you collect a peer group of people who are learning how to code and people who have just passed where you are today because they will be your best guides and your best advocates and they will point you to resources like um Colt Steel's Udemy the web developer bootcamp um that that's one that I really like it was recently refreshed in 2020 2021 and um my mentees have been using it they really love it because it walks through the end-to-end -end life cycle of HTML, CSS, JavaScript. But there are also a ton of other great resources out there. I also recommend just follow people on Twitter who are doing this kind of work in public because one day you'll just be scrolling through Twitter and you'll see some great resource like JavaScript 30 or something else that can change your life. It can change your career. Definitely. I feel like the topic of having a mentor is really interesting. Um, I'm not sure if I've ever directly sought out a mentor and maybe I should. So I feel like I have my older sister, um, I have my good friend Jay in the audience. And I feel like those are people who are mentors to me, but I never really directly sought one out um, when I feel like maybe, maybe I should. 
Um, but do you have any specific ways that you go about, you know, finding a mentor? Oh, I really love this question because I, I feel like I'm similar to you, Madison. It, it wasn't ever me saying, oh, I need a mentor. Like, I need somebody to mentor me right now. It was just kind of this, you know, relationship where you establish, you establish this mutual purpose, whether it's learning how to code, you know, a passion for uh, video games or a passion for, you know, let's say like cooking. And through this mutual bond that you establish with this person, it starts with one small question. And that question can be, hey, you know, if I was learning how to write JavaScript, where do you think I should go look? And they'll answer that question. And you don't know this, and they don't know this, but that person just became your mentor. And we, we tend to think of mentors as these like people we put on pedestals, but really they're just your peers and your peers, peers. And it's a collection of all this knowledge that has been passed from person to person. And it's, it's organic, it's a relationship. And so my advice would be, if you're looking to find a mentor, just find somebody, establish that mutual bond, like start a conversation. Don't just say, hey, can you teach me how to code? Hey, can you look at my resume? These kind of questions don't, they don't develop into a mentorship or, or any kind of relationship really. Just start with one simple question and then come back and ask them another question and always give them feedback too. Like that's an important part of developing a mentee and mentor relationship is saying, hey, you know, I came to you with this question. It was really helpful. Here's how it helped me. Thank you so much for your time. And then, you know, lob, up, lob another question their way. Um, I wanted to move on to talking about this awesome article you wrote. It's called How I Got My Dream Job as a Self-Taught Engineer. And there's one part of it that I was thinking about. You talk about how if you could go back, you'd give yourself the advice of avoiding silos. And I wanted to ask you if you could talk more on that and kind of what you meant. Yeah. Um, first, thanks for kind of reading my, that, that post is kind of like my coming of software engineering where um, there's, there's a lot of people out there who don't see themselves as a software engineer. They don't, you know, they think, oh, I have to go to a boot camp or I have to go get a master's degree. And those are ways to get in, but there are also plenty of other ways to become a software engineer. And especially if you're self-taught, the first piece of advice I give you is to avoid a silo. And what this means is, so for those who don't know what a silo is, it's basically just like isolating yourself and doing things on your own. Uh, when you're self-taught, you can't do this. It's, it's bad for many reasons. And the first reason I'll say is a silo just closes you off to new information. It closes you off to, you know, ways in which you can improve your code, ways in which you can collaborate better, or even the things that you need to know to be successful in the industry and get a job. So when you're self-taught, it's really important that you establish a network and you build this network based off of people who have similar passions, people who are in a similar position, or even people who are ahead of you, because these are people that can become your mentors, whether they realize it or you realize it. And so what, what it means to avoid a silo is just find ways to do your work in public, whether it's posting on Twitter, contributing to open source, writing articles and tutorials, 
all of these things will get you exposure to both feedback and new ideas. And that's really important for a self-taught engineer. I feel like my problem with that sometimes is thinking about learning in public. I try to sometimes, but I think I have this fear of I'm always going to look too junior. Um, I've been trying to work through that, I think. But especially with, you know, showing my code to other people, I still feel often iffy and I'm worried about looking, you know, I guess putting out bad code, essentially. Um, <laughs> <funny> people. <laughs> oh, I, I totally understand that. And for those who think like that, what I put out there is, perfect like um madison you should know that anytime i post anything i've already screened it with like three other people um i i get you it's it's tough to it's tough to put yourself out there and it's tough to be vulnerable um the the advice i would give you is everybody's doing it and like i've made a lot of mistakes i've i've made huge huge failures but those helped me learn and yeah, I, I think that's kind of the path forward for self-taught engineers is getting those mistakes out of the way. Yeah, definitely. And I want to talk more about that. I think you've already said a little bit about it, learning in public. And um, I want to talk more about, you know, making sure you're growing as an engineer, not just as you're learning how to code, where obviously you got to do a lot of growing to kind of become a developer, but, you know, continuing to grow throughout your career. And I think this is really fascinating to me because um, I think it's just a fear I have that at some point I might stop growing. And so I ask myself a lot, how can I make sure I keep growing as a developer or am I growing? So I, okay, I just asked like seven questions in there, but I guess to start <laughs> off with, I mean, what does it even mean to grow as a developer? Oh, uh, good question. I, you know, we, we can think of growth as many things. There's there's like knowing more code. So if I, you know, if I handed you JavaScript, how much JavaScript would you feel comfortable with? There's kind of the technical depth of going into a code base. So if you started a job tomorrow, how long would it take you to onboard? How long would it take you to understand the code that other people have written? Then there's just general career growth. So are you getting the opportunities and the compensation that you feel you deserve and that you're valued for? So growth for me kind of is a sum of all of these things. And when I, when I think about growth, I think those who are starting out today, they have to do a lot of technical exploration to get comfortable with it. You know, if, if you're working in front end, there is a lot to know to build a front end application today. So, it's knowing the frameworks, it's knowing the technologies that those frameworks use. And once you're comfortable with those, I think I, I tend to look at, you know, once you have that breadth of knowledge, it's time to go deep onto one or two or three domains. So for me, that was, you know, I was, I was really good with front end, but I wasn't so good with back end. And so I kind of uh, expanded my breadth from front end to back end becoming full stack. And then once I was full stack, I, I figured, you know, okay, I, I need to really dive deep more on the back end side so that I can build stronger front end applications. And so I developed my breadth, my depth, and then from there, I started to focus more on career. I want to talk more about something else you said um, on your blog. And yeah, for anyone who's listening, um, it's coal.codes. And you're talking about on your blog, there were times in your career when you became too comfortable. 
and you maybe didn't seek out opportunities that really challenged you. And I want to talk more about how can we recognize when we're getting too comfortable? Uh, this is something I definitely want to watch out for. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough question to answer because comfort can also look like burnout. So when, when I talk about me getting, me being really comfortable, what I really mean is I found myself doing the same thing over and over and the results weren't any different. And so, you know, I, I was comfortable building startup after startup and I, I was comfortable just writing the same kind of code every day, but I was kind of hungrier for more. I was, I was hungrier for, you know, more impact to reach more users, to build things that would be used globally um, and to have more impact in the sense of, well, the work that I was doing was I wanted to bring more value to the business. And so this is kind of one way in which people can grow too, is they expand on their technical growth to also start thinking about the business and product needs. So I, I kind of recognized that I was so frustrated that I found myself coding 16 hours a day because what I was doing in those first eight to 10 hours just wasn't satisfying. It, I was just hungrier for more. That's really interesting. So you were doing your kind of normal coding and you felt like you were just hungry, like you said, and then, so you kind of kept going, it sounds like. Yeah, I, <laughs> I was working at two startups at once with the same founders. And um, while I was building a new product during the day, I was rewriting the old product into React and uh, some some backend framework uh, in in my evening time, and so I wasn't you know I wasn't having any fun. I I wasn't really living my life in those few years, and so one day I woke up and I was like, I can't do this anymore. Like, I need to both grow and stop being comfortable in a way that leads me to burnout. Definitely. So I want to switch gears a little bit. Something else you've talked about on your blog is when engineers are starting out, you kind of recommend that they develop a breadth of knowledge in their role. So in other words, knowing a little bit about a lot. And then you suggest that they find areas to explore more in depth and kind of develop their expertise. And I want to ask you, if someone isn't sure, you know, what expertise they'd like to develop, um, what would you say to them? what might be like a good way to start figuring out as a developer, you know, what area of expertise do I want to develop? Oh, this is a good question. And it's one of those tough ones where, you know, those who know me know, I'll just say like, it depends. And it, it's not a combat answer. What it, what it really means is it depends on what you, where your interests lie and where your passions are. Because if you really care a lot about, for example, building products that, people use and the kind of joy that comes with, here's something I built and I can use it. You know, I, I push this button and this thing happens. Then I would suggest look at front end development. If you are more interested in systems and things, how they come together, breaking apart a huge problem by looking at the individual puzzle pieces, kind of the big picture and small picture, then you might be more interested in backend or infrastructure. Or if you really just like, you know, best analogy I have is like the whack-a-mole. If, if you like doing whack-a-mole with problems, then you might be more interested in ops or other things like that, or, or um, kind of 
the the other processes in a company that help you uh, deliver an application. And so what I would recommend is for those who are wondering, you know, what do I want to do next? Try the introductory to a few things. Try to build a web app. Try to build an API. Find the things that bring you joy because at the end of the day, you know, all of these jobs, they they, they pay a lot of money and it's it's enough to get by. But at the end of the day, you have to enjoy what you're doing because if you're not, you will you will not enjoy it. And that's that's not a good place to be. But that's not to say money is everything or perks are everything. There are a ton of people who enjoy the work that they do, but their passions are, you know, tangential or orthogonal to tech itself. So try a lot of things, see what sticks and see what you really enjoy. Yeah, definitely. Um, the whack-a-mole, I haven't heard that. That's too funny. <laughs> but I really like that advice because I think to your point, once you start working as a developer and you have a good job and it's great to have money, of course, but actually enjoying what you're doing is really important. Um, so yeah. I want to talk more about, you have written a blog about how thoughtfulness and decision-making for software engineers can be broken down into these three different domains. Um, but can you talk more about these three domains? Sure. This is kind of a framework that's really helped me because I'll, t I'll tell you honestly, I used to really struggle with having conversations in teams and having conversations in meetings where I was only thinking about the code. And so what somebody showed me is that I was really just thinking about the technical domain. You know, as engineers, we often think, okay, I have to write this amount of code in this amount of time to get this out the door and I'm on to the next code. But as you become more senior or as you expand your role into things like a, a product engineer, then you also need to think more about the organization or the operations. And what these mean are, how does my code scale across the team or how does it scale across the organization? How are other people going to look at my code? Or if somebody were to come into the code base tomorrow, would they be effective or productive? And if you look at the kind of operations domain, you're thinking more about the business and how your code has an impact on the business overall. So things like performance and scalability, you know, if I develop this feature in this way, will that allow a PM or a designer to create this new feature tomorrow? Or if I build it in a way that doesn't scale, are we going to have to go back and rip it out or rebuild it? And so when you think across these three different domains, it really helps you to understand the trade-offs that we make every day when we go to companies and we work in teams. We're thinking about the technical merits of, of a problem, the way it affects the organization and how it helps us move the business forward. So that's kind of what these three domains mean. I wish every developer kind of thought more on these three domains because um, I just remember like before I started working as a developer, I would see people on Twitter and places and they would say, well, you know, being a good developer on a team, it's more than about just code. And I would kind of think, oh, whatever, you know, it's people say that. And then I feel like once I started working on teams, I actually realized that that's so true. And that, you know, if you're not doing something like communicating well, uh, if you're just all about only code, then it can be often, you know, disastrous on an engineering team. Um, so yeah, I definitely agree with that. <laughs> yeah, totally. To your point, I, I think 
for engineering, it's maybe like 30 to 40% code and the rest is communication and those other essential skills. Most engineers that only think about code, a few of them get up there, but most of them tend to not progress in the way or get the results that they want. Okay, so I wanna move on to talking about technical interviews. And you wrote this awesome post that came out, um, standing out louder in technical interviews. And yeah, I, I would love for you to kind of give us an overview of this post. You talk about kind of a framework in this post and I'd love for you to kind of share it with us. Uh, yeah, so for, for those who don't know, I was thinking about you know, all the technical interviews where I've made huge blunders and all the technical interviews where I've done really well and as well as listening to other people to hear their experiences. And we often talk about standing out in the interview and the things that you need to do, but when everybody is standing out, how do you stand out from the rest? So, you know, if everybody is amazing and they're engaging and thinking out loud, what do you need to do to stand out from those people? So I call it standing out louder and louder is just an acronym for both the process and the things that I, I think need to happen during the interview to be effective and to ace the interview. So louder means listen to the other person. And what this means is ask how and why. Uh, if they're asking you to solve a problem, try to understand why they're asking you this problem and not something else. And during this process, you'll kind of think about what are some of the things that you need to speak to? Uh, the next process is orient the problem statement. So when your interviewer asks you to solve this problem, just rephrase it, reframe it, and summarize the prompt. Doing this gives you an opportunity to demonstrate that you understand. But also, if you happen to have misinterpreted what the interviewer was asking, this is a chance for them to course correct you. So. From here, uh, the next step is to uncover the scope and requirements. And so once you've listened to the problem, you've reoriented it. Next, you will try to pick apart the main cases and the edge cases so that you understand what you're solving, what you're not solving, and anything else that might stress test what you're building. Because you don't want to find out after you've solved the problem that you missed something. And so when you're uncovering the scope and requirements, you'll ask them for both, you know, you'll, you'll cover the main cases, you'll try to give as many edge cases as you can think of, but then you can ask, have I covered all of the edge cases and give them an opportunity to collaborate in your problem solving. From here, you deliver a plan and this is where really you're kind of fleshing everything out from whiteboarding to pseudocoding to doing the actual coding. This is where you're, you know, creating multiple solutions and collaborating on which solution is the best before you start writing the code. Once you've delivered a plan, then it's time to examine the solution. So my advice is don't just say, you know, don't solve the problem and say, okay, I'm done. Because, you know, that just, there's so much missed opportunity here. When you examine the solution, you can talk through the main cases and edge cases and how they work in your code and how your solution works overall. And I treat this like a presentation. And the reason why is in the process of doing this, it allows you to check your, your work and potentially uncover an issue and intervene quickly. 
So before they've even graded your work, this gives you an opportunity to examine the solution. And then the last thing I recommend doing is to reflect because um, it just like the same way of saying, okay, I'm done. Really, it's important to look at what you solved, evaluate the trade-offs, like maybe you took some performance shortcuts or um, what you would do if you had more time. And then take this time to ask your interviewer, what do you think about the solution? And this is really just a great opportunity to collaborate and engage in conversation with your interviewer. And by doing all of these steps, listening to the other person, orienting the problem statement, uncovering the scope and requirements, delivering a plan, examining the solution and reflecting, all of these steps together are exactly what your interviewer would expect you to do. And it's exactly what they expect you to do when you get the job. And by doing this, you can act in a way confidently that almost it's, it's kind of the way in which it's like, act as if you already have the job and this is the framework to do it. Yeah, those are fantastic, especially with orienting. Um, I read that part of your post and even when I'm just doing practice problems, trying to restate the problem in my own words. And I, most of the time I realized that, you know, I didn't actually understand the problem. So I feel like that's a really good check when you're trying to kind of restate the problem. And then you realize like, am I actually understanding this problem and kind of gives you a, a check in a way to slow down and go back if you need to. Yeah, totally. I it's, it's actually saved me from an interview where I almost failed. I also like at the end to kind of just not just saying I'm done. Um, I think I've done that before when the kind of solution is over, there's almost a rush to, I almost have the urge to be like, okay, I'm done. I did it. Um, instead of slowing down for a second and looking at, you know, like you said, maybe possibly refactoring or just kind of looking back at what you've done. Yeah, totally. I mean, again, that's, that's another way in which I have failed an interview because I was to your point, just rushing to the end and I had nothing else to show for it. Yeah. Cole, thank you so much for joining me. And for anyone who is listening, could you tell us, you know, where to find you on the internet for anyone who wants to learn more about you? Yeah, um, first of all, thank you, Madison. I, for those who don't know, she prepared this amazing discussion and uh, I, I just thought it was a really cool conversation. So thank you for both inviting me and preparing all of this. Um, and if for those who are new friends, you can catch me on Twitter through my Clubhouse bio. I'm also on LinkedIn. But, you know, if you ever have a question outside of Clubhouse, I really love just when people tweet at me and I get to respond there. Um, my inbox is always open, too.